Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Nancy Ann, one of the hosts of this channel, and here with me today is Rochelle Hope Salzman, editor of Pussy Hats, Politics, and Public Protests, a collection of folkloric examinations of pussy hats, protest signs, community resistance, and the carnivalesque nature of the women's marches that took place throughout the country in 2017, immediately after Donald Trump's presidential election. Contributors to this volume include established and emerging voices in folklore scholarship, scholarships such as Sue Eleterio, Andrea Glass, Jack Santino, Patricia Sawin, and Adam Zolkover. Dr. Salzman, also known as Ricky, is a folklorist at the Oregon Folklife Network and the High Desert Museum and a lecturer in the University of Oregon's Folklore and Public Culture Program. Welcome, Ricky. It's so good to have you here. Thanks, Nancy. It's delightful to to be doing this. <laughs> um, so before we start uh, discussing the book, I'd like to ask you about your folklore origin story. How did you come to folklore? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, a few different paths. Um, the, the most direct was um, I was at the University of Delaware as an undergraduate freshman year. Um, I grew up in Delaware in Wilmington, and um, I was taking U.S. history survey course taught by Jim Curtis. And um, it was, you know, one of those huge 400 student lecture hall things with they were doing all kinds of multimedia stuff, you know, three image slide tape shows and everything. And and Curtis was was quite the entertainer. Anyway, towards the end of the term, um, they announced that they were doing um, he and Bob Bethke, who taught folklore in the English department at Delaware, um, <clears throat> announced that they were going to be teaching um, a course over winter session, which was a five week session at Delaware between uh, fall and spring semesters. Uh, and then you know, winter, winter session plus spring for a total of nine credits. Um, just about a guaranteed A. I don't think they quite said that, but it, it was implied later on. Um, and we would get to do oral history and learn about folklore and uh, and do our own slide tape media shows. And it was like, okay, that sounds like fun. Um, so I tried my little freshman self down there and got interviewed and they decided I was, was acceptable. And that was kind of the beginning of it. And so winter session, we... Um, I don't know, I think there were 25 students in the class. We split up into five different groups. My group was the group documenting watermen on the eastern shore of Maryland on the Chesapeake. And at that point, there were still, I want to say, um, 20 skipjacks under sail, uh, dredging for oysters in the wintertime in the Chesapeake. Uh, and we, I mean, I think I was the youngest of the group, but you know, we, we got to interview a sailmaker, um, the people in the local market. We went out on the skipjack in a blizzard in January. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely insane. I wouldn't dream of letting a student do that now. But anyway, it was fun. Um, you know, we came back. We uh, Anyway, it was. And that was my actually beginning of learning to ask stupid questions. Um, so one of the things, so you have to understand, I grew up in, in the area. My dad fished. Um, my mom was a teacher. He was a millwright. You know, I, I'd been on boats all my life, but nothing like this. This was a working boat. Now we were not allowed out under sail. That would have been too dangerous. They had to go out under power a couple of times a week. So, you know, we're starting to ask questions. It is super cold. The battery on the tape recorder was running down. So the interview sounds like this in parts, <laughs> you know, old, old days, not even rechargeable. And, um, and we're on this boat for 12 hours. We are freezing. There's no head on the boat. People are using buckets. And, um, and you know, we're, they're talking about soft-shelled crabs in the summertime. And I pop up with what is one of the dumbest questions I think I've ever asked. And I said, oh, well, what about soft-shelled oysters? And they just looked at me. And, um, you know, this crew of four guys and God knows what my classmates were thinking at this point, because um, they may well have thought I was intelligent before this question. But anyway, um, they just stared at me. There was a there was a definite silence. And and then they said there there are no soft shelled oysters. And then they they seemed to get that they had somebody who knew absolutely nothing. And they told us everything. I mean, it, it in many ways, I couldn't have designed a better question to have elicited really great information. Um, you know, so I, I like to sort of tell my, that story on myself, one, because I, I'm still stunned by my own stupidity of, you know, 18-year-old know-it-all. Um, and, uh, and also that you know, when I'm when I'm teaching um, or uh, mentoring students, as I do at uh, University of Oregon, um, it's really important to let students know it's okay to ask those dumb questions. Um, and no question is dumb. You can ask ignorant, racist questions, <laughs> insensitive questions, and you should try to avoid that. But um, but in terms of if you don't know the answer, don't pretend that you do, um, because it's not going to get you anywhere. We know that as folklorists. Um, don't assume, you know. So that was sort of the beginning of it, and um, you know, I continued to do oral history and folklore projects throughout my undergraduate career, and um, actually did uh, my senior thesis on um, my family focused on my grandmother who came with my grandfather, my uh, maternal side, um, from Lithuania and came in 1921. It was um, just after World War One. They were supposed to come earlier, um, but the war happened. And uh, my mother was was born on the boat in New York Harbor. And so she was born an American citizen. Um, my grandmother was eight and a half months pregnant when they left. So um, it was like, I can't imagine that happening. But we, yeah, anyway, I won't tell the family joke about that. But, um, but yeah, so that was a mixture of doing archival research, which I love doing um, a ton of oral history and ethnographic interviews with my grandmother and my mother. Um, and then, and my aunt ended up, you know, being the reader, the narrator for the script for it. And um, yeah, and I, when we did the showing, um, and the deal was to do the, it was the degree with distinction in history. So um, you had to do a written thesis to go along with 
whatever else you did. And I don't think too many other people at the time, because this would have, this was, um, I graduated in 77, um, were doing, you know, films or slide tape media shows. Um, and um, it, so at one point, the, you know, so, so both of my advisors, um, Jim Curtis and uh, Bill Fletcher, both in history. And um, I think Bob Bethke was, he was also a part of it in English. Um, the outside person said, well, why did you use your grandmother's voice? She has an accent. And I remember, you know, just the absolute, I, I felt insulted. I felt shocked. I just felt dissed. Um, and I said, it, because it's her voice and it's her story, what else would I do? I mean, and, and you know, the professors, the advisors chimed in after I answered um, and defended that decision because I think they were every bit as shocked by the question as I was. Um, but, you know, they were a little bit older, had more perspective. But um, <laughs> anyway, so that was sort of the beginning of it. And then I, um, you know, started looking at grad schools and I um, decided to <coughs> to take what would have been called a gap year. Ended up working at the Jewish Historical Society in Wilmington, um, curating a collection of World War II letters that, um, so the, there's a, a Jewish Y. Um, and during World War II, this woman, Molly Sklut, was the secretary for the Y. And um, she wrote to all of the, the boys who um, were, were in the military. And, and they wrote back. So these were, these were guys who were my parents' generation. Uh, my dad knew a lot of them. Um, and uh, they were either overseas in various places, different you know, war theaters, or in the U.S. And they were eight to 10,000 letters. Um, they were, and they, uh, the then, uh, newsletter during the war, um, published them on occasion as the Dear Molly letters. And, um, so this was this amazing collection of, of, you know, historical documents of, these were the fathers of my friends, you know, and they were my age when they were writing them. And, you know, we had just come out of the Vietnam War and this was a very, very different world. And the, I was, I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised by the patriotism <coughs> that was just what we would call, you know, rah-rah over the top. Um, a lot of stuff was edited out. You know, there were censors. Um, they, they, they all had little, you know, um, black marker, you know, things going throughout. Um, in some of them, they'd actually had words cut out. Um, so anyway, you know, I'm in the basement of the historical society and, and it's warm and I'm starting to nod off cause you know, I'm reading and reading and it's cozy and I'm reading all the letters, which I probably, I don't know, shouldn't have been doing, should have been like doing my job and filing them and organizing them, but I was reading them. And, and at one point I thought I am getting so bored here in the basement filing, not reading, but, but just the general mundane aspects of archival work that um, I, I proposed to my boss. I said, you know, a lot of these guys, they're my parents' age. They're still alive. I mean, you know, they were then in their, in their 40s. I said, I'd like to start interviewing them. And they were like, yeah, sure. So, so that was great. So I got to get out of the basement and did a bunch of the interviews, and, and including interviewing Molly, who apparently knew me as a baby. Um, 
and all that because she knew my parents. So that was really kind of a trip uh, to do that. And then I uh, went off to grad school at the University of Texas. I was going to do, I thought at the time, it actually turned out that way, but I didn't start that way, uh, through the history department. I have a master's in history and a maybe D in history, um, that I was going to do this, you know, basically a British studies degree um, at UT Austin. And um, it is ultimately what I ended up doing, but uh, people kind of scratched their heads. The folklore people thought it was kind of a cool idea. Um, the history people were scratching their heads. And anyway, I just kind of went for it. And um, yeah, so I did that and um, took a couple of years off and worked at the Center for Southern Folklore for Judy Pizer and Bill Ferris and did an ethnography of the Jewish community. That was, it was a um, Department of Ed, I want to say title, I forget what title it was, some grant. And, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on her name now. Uh, uh, somebody else had written the grant and then she couldn't take take the gig. And so both um, Bob Befke and Tom Green, who were my mentors at the University of Delaware, both folklore said, you need to get this job. So I was like, okay. So I did. And that was great. And um, did that for a um, little over a year and then worked for the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at Ole Miss. And then went back to grad school in folklore and um, did my dissertation on the 1926 general strike and the strike breakers who were for the most part um, upper class and upper middle class folks and, and some working class people and looked at that behavior as um, traditional uh, holiday behavior, leisure time behavior in the context of a, of a very, very, very uh, political um, uh, public event that um, did not turn into the revolution that people feared um, despite Winston Churchill's putting tanks in the streets of London, um, you know, before million workers came out in a sympathy strike with the coal miners and, um, the, um, the rest of the country, uh, coped with a nine day stoppage and, um, the young people came out and had a great time. So that became the book, A Lark for the Sake of Their Country, which is a study of the, uh, the upper class volunteers in the 1926 general strike. And again, looking at carnival type behavior, um, leisure time behavior um, by people who had never really worked um, for the most part. Although a lot of people who were, who were so-called volunteer strike breakers had in fact worked and they, and they were paid for their strike breaking. Um, but the image, the public image of it was of, you know, these sort of, um, you know, Lord Peter Whimsy types, um, in their plus fours and fair isle sweaters, you know, driving the trains, crashing a few, oops, didn't mean to kill a person. Um, it, you know, just an experience, um, a lot forgiven because of their, um, their status and the volunteer nature of the job and the fact that they went into it in the spirit of this is a lark, this is a game. We're going to save the country as our brothers and fathers did in world war one. And, um, that that became kind of the the overriding thing, and really, it, it was. I think it created the stereotype of the um, amateur gentleman, you know, kind of crystallized at at that point, and it it becomes a key symbol in British culture, um, for sure. 
So, and it was great. I had a blast doing the field work. I um, got to do archival work. I got to interview people. I got to go all over the country, um, the UK, and um, yeah, made dear friends. And um, yeah. It sounds like you so have been a folklorist. <laughs> it sounds like you found your calling at 18. <laughs> you know, you really, no, you really started. I, I mean, it sounds like you got in you know, or heading that way ever since you're 18, you know, conducting interviews, doing field work. So, and here you are writing about the folklore protest marches, um, you know, so uh, thank you for sharing that background in history and gives a better context of, um, of um, you know, your uh, editing this, uh, this publication, which is actually really timely um, because we just finished the 2020 election and this edited collection uh, focuses on the 2017 Women's March, which you know, took place or rather was response to uh, the 2016 election of Donald Trump. Did you plan it this way? Did you plan to have it published right now? <laughs> Yeah, actually, we did. <laughs> it was <laughs> okay, so the press, the press was, Yeah, the press was great. Well, we had sort of two choices, um, you know, and you know how publishing works. It's always going to take longer than you think it will um, because of readers' comments, because of revisions, because people have, oh, yeah, a life and other obligations. So they had said, okay, we can, we can sort of aim for two targets. One would be um, the centennial of women getting the right to vote, of women's suffrage in the U.S., or we can look at it as as coming out right at the same time as as the the 2020 election. And we all said, okay, let's let's aim for the the anniversary of suffrage, uh, which you know we kind of sort of did too, but that really wasn't quite the point. Um, but but really, I think we're going to end up with this deadline. But, you know, knowing people and life and publishing, uh, yeah, let's aim for the first and, and know that we'll make the second. So, so yeah, um, Mississippi Press was very, very wise about this. And they, they were a dream to work with. Um, I will say it's way easier doing a book. Yeah, they really do. And it's so much easier doing a book now than... You know, the dissertation to book project is always like, oh, my gosh, it's going to take forever. And, you know, there's so much emotion tied up with it. Whereas this was, you know, we well, so many things go so much faster because it's all online. Um, <clears throat> but and, you know, probably the hardest part was making sure we had all of our permissions um, which well, it's which just good timing because you know I mean we just finished uh, so it was published in October and then we just you know we 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 know the results of this election so it's definitely full circle and there's such a there's such a contrast um, in uh, November of 2016 there was immediate massive protests that were very angry and vociferous and I remember a lot of tear gas as well too um, uh, but in contrast. The women's marches held in uh, January 2017 uh, were, in many ways, very merry, as you and the other contributors described it, carnivalesque. And so, um, you know, th- let's be clear: this was characteristic of many of the women's marches that took place, not just the big one in DC or um, the the ones that you and the other contributors um, of the uh, collection um, attended. And I just was, I just wanted. I was curious, I wanted to ask you this question. What in particular was carnivalesque about the women's marches? So maybe you could define what carnivalesque was and describe some of the carnival carnivalesque elements of the women's marches. 
Oh gosh, putting me on the spot. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> carnivalesque is is uh, um, a word coined by Bakhtin. Um, looking back at um, a book he published called Rabelais and His World. So looking at you know the the carnivalesque in the everyday in the marketplace, the grotesque, the upside downness of it, the excess, the license. Um, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of you know, sexuality, uh, drinking, eating, whatever, everything is big and, you know, it's just out there and it's obscene and it's, you know, not in a, in a, you know, pornographic way, but, but obscene in its, it's just right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, (laughs) a word I never thought I could say out loud, um, but, um, or wanted to, but, um, but yeah, so, so, I think um, because all of us who who are writing about it, certainly Jack and Patricia and myself, um, because we've, you know, Patricia and I were in grad school together. Um, I've known Jack almost, I don't know, I met him at American Folklore Society meeting years ago. His his wife, Lucy Long, is a, is a, one of my best friends, too. But we've all been writing about um, World Turned Upside Down, festival, carnivalesque stuff forever. Um, so, you know, it's kind of kind of in the air for us. So, and I think, so you have, you know, the carnivalesque itself though is not carnival. It's stuff that, um, public events that resemble, that have a number of the features of carnival, which is when the lower classes get to take power are allowed. That's the key word to take power, um, from the upper classes to turn the world upside down, to poke fun, to critique, um, all within the festival license, because people um, often masked um, are, are, you know, the thing starts, the thing happens, the thing ends, and life goes back to normal. If you're lucky, um, or maybe not lucky, depending on your situation and what you want changed, um, because there is a transformative power to carnival, to um, these holidays, these calendar customs that happen at the the uh, the seasonal changes of the year, you know, and and you know, sort of the 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 scholarly explanation for a lot of it is, you know, Max Gluckman came up with the um, safety valve theory of saying, yeah, you know, you let them loose for a while and then you shut it down, and that keeps them from blowing up the rest of the time. Well, not always, um, and a lot of revolutions. Um, have a carnivalesque quality. And you look at the Boston Tea Party, um, which, you know, which is kind of one of the easy ones. You had a bunch of, you know, white Anglo guys dressing up like American Indians at night, disguised, dumping tea into Boston Harbor. I mean, really? <laughs> that That's pretty darn in your face. Um, you know, and so you have these, these big blow up um, symbolic reactions that matter. And, and those are the, you know, again, the key symbols of, of different cultures have different ones. And so um, I myself am fascinated when people take traditional holiday behavior, house visiting behavior, often Halloween, um, what used to be May Day, um, a lot of the Christmas pageantry has to do with house visiting, um, mummers, um, so, you know, where, where you've got people dressing up, visiting other people's homes, um, or doing their thing on the street corners or the crossways, um, as Roger Abrams um, has written about or had written about. Um, 
and um, in some ways inspiring some fear about it and then demanding drink, food, and money. Um, at Halloween, we allow, except for this year, small children usually to come to our homes in the U.S., knock on the door, and ask demand candy. Um, when this happens and it's not Halloween, it can be a real mess. And um, there was a, a case I remember years ago, I want to say it was in Houston, because I think it happened when I was in grad school, where um, uh, some young man from, um, I don't know, I think from another country, uh, got his dates mixed up and knocked on a door and, and was killed in response. It wasn't quite stand your ground in those days, but but, you know, he, he scared the homeowners who were probably a little on the trigger happy side and um, and he was killed. You know, so it's sort of like, you know, you got to watch this when you start pulling out of context behavior into a into every day. It can be dangerous, but you pull it into a political context um, and it, and it can turn into a revolution. Um, and, and it's no accident that it does because all the, all the tools are there and these kinds of behaviors happen. The ones that turn into revolutions or big protests, um, when usually when legal redress is, is not working, you know, they've tried legal measures, um, petitioned the courts, you know, done whatever could be done and it's spurned. I mean, it happened with this, with the suffragists. You know, exactly the same thing over and over and over. And um, I mean, people died, people were hurt, um, people were murdered and, you know, killed over it. So so that's that's like the extreme. OK, but in these events and I will say, um, you know, the, the women's marches of 17, um, they were joyous. Um, you know, it was. It was a rush. And and I say that as somebody who, okay, so, you know, full confession, I study this stuff. Crowds terrify me. I don't want to be in a crowd, you know, uh, crowds get tight and pressing. And, you know, if people are drinking at the same time, um, you know, I don't want to be there. You know, it, it's just not, I, I'm, you know, a little bit on the introvert side with that. I don't like being around large crowds of rowdy people, but this was different. And, and I will say that, um, you know, I had never really done a real march before, you know, I was sort of caught in the generations, you know, I think my parents were terrified. I was going to go off to college and demonstrate. And, uh, my father had to talk with me before I went. I mean, I was in, I started college in 74. So, you know, all the big protests were over, much to my disappointment. Sue Letario, and we actually had the same uh, background. We went to the same high school. I grew up with one of her sisters. Um, we were both at University of Delaware, four years apart. Bob Bethke was her first folklore professor. So, um, and we, we sort of rediscovered each other when we were both living in the Midwest years ago. But anyway, um, she was part of those demonstrations. The people, my husband and my friends, Rick March and um, Nikki, uh, oh, I'm going to forget her last name. Apologies, Nikki. Um, sorry. Uh, the people we were with first for, for 2017 in Portland, you know, they'd all marched before. You know, they were they were some years older. Um, than I was. And um, they, they actually knew what they were doing. And and I'm like, yeah, we're going to go do this. It'd be cool. And of course, I've got my daughter with me, you know, who's who's just turned, she was about to turn 18. Uh, she missed voting in the election just by two months. But anyway, um, 
so it was joyous and it was fun and um, it was a little lame and it was physically really uncomfortable because of the rain in Portland and we really weren't dressed quite right. But anyway, it was fun. And the signs, oh my God, the signs were just amazing. So, yeah. That was one of the key features I, I did notice about um, uh, the march. I attended uh, the Cincinnati march because I was based in Columbus at the time and Columbus for some reason, and I don't remember the reason, they had their women's march um, the week before. And, I, and um, maybe it was so that people could go to the D.C. march. But um, so then I went to the uh, Cincinnati one, which was the day after the inauguration. And I think you're absolutely right that it was uh, it was uh, in many places it was joyous and it had a different quality from other protests. And people think of protests as something that's very somber. Right. And very, um, very angry and vociferous. And the women's marches were uh joyful, light, funny. And I'm just wondering, and, you know, this is something I was thinking about too, you know, why do you think the women's marches were carnivalesque as opposed to these other marches, you know, that people might have attended, the ones immediately after the Trump election, um, election or even subsequent marches like um, uh, Black Lives Matter marches, um, protests. Why did the women's march have this carnivalesque quality that other protests did not? You know, it's a great question, um, and it's something you know. I think we we try to cover in the book. Um, I don't know if how successfully we do it. It's um, I think so. For me personally, I think it was because there was this potential for change. I have to admit, I was one of the diehards who hadn't quite given up on the election being overturned, which is a little you know scary when I look at what's going on now. I'm thinking like, wow. What's, you know, how am I different from, you know, the other side, so to speak, um, protesting Biden's election? Um, so I think there was that um, that hope that things could change. And there was, you know, there was this pulling together um, of people. I mean, you know, there was the shock of election night and the ensuing days and weeks. And, um, you know, I mean, I get the anger. I was angry. We all, so many of us were angry. I was angry for four years. I still am, you know? Yeah, shocked. You know, I mean, my daughter was sobbing, you know? I mean, 17 years old. That was her political coming of age, you know? I mean, which which, which I have to say his mom was kind of cool, but also like, whoa, what? that's not the coming of age you want for your daughter, you know? So I think... It was, um, there was just sort of this pulling together and realization that if we didn't get our butts in gear and do something to change this horrible situation, you know, that was enabling this administration to put its, you know, racist, xenophobic, you know, I mean, name your bad thing, um, into play that this was going to get really, really bad. And of course it did for a lot of people. Um, so I, I think that was a part of it and it was, boy, I don't know. It was like coming out of mourning in a way, but also, I mean, nobody knew it at the time. We couldn't foresee the next four years. Um, thank God (laughs) if we could have, um, but it, but it was, um, yeah, it was fun. It was empowering. Um, 
I think for a lot of people, uh, especially ones my daughter's age and into their 20s, you know, it's the first real time they'd done anything like this. And who knew that there were going to be March after March after March um, and increasingly I mean, throughout, somber. Yeah, throughout the yeah. world, yeah. Um, millions of people, more uh, more people than attended the inauguration. Uh, well, yeah, uh, Trump's by, inauguration. by many, many schools. Yeah, and that was, <laughs> so I think to the, the aftermath, I mean, you know, because we're all, you know, we're folklore, so we're all like taking pictures, you know, because that's what we do. Um, and and then the face, you know, Facebook was blowing up. Um, and then the, um, what do you call it, the, the little private group that, that blew into three, four million, um, you know, that, that really, Pansu Nation, oh my gosh. Um, and I'm still in time, you know, I think there's some people that I'm friends with because of that. I've never met them. And, um, you know, but but we're we're in touch because of that. And, and it's, it's, it's really, really quite, quite lovely. I think, um, you know, it set examples that you could have these big, gigantic protest marches and not be violent, not be dangerous, um, though, of course, many have become that way um, with good reason. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, it was sort of the beginning of something. And really, I, I, I kept a sort of a like, never again. This isn't going to happen again. We have to stop this. And I think humor is such a huge weapon too. I mean, and this women's march was nothing if not about humor. <laughs> the um, you know, it, the signs were definitely a big thing because I remember seeing um, BuzzFeed. They had collections of like the best signs. Um, one that didn't show up in your book, but was my favorite was this little baby. And he uh, had a sign that says, I heart naps, but I stay woke. <laughs> that was the cutest thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, in this book, it's full of um, images from the t- protests and protest signs, you know, um, you know, because you, you are a folklore, so you document this stuff. And um, so I want to describe some uh, the physical aspects of the book. It's not a typical academic book. It's more like a square shape with pages and pages of images from the women's marches, mostly from Portland, Chicago, Raleigh. North Carolina and some from Denver, DC, and even Paris. And in, in your chapter, These Pussies Grab Back, protesting at the 2017 Portland's Women's March, you write, quote, the various signs employed all sorts of devices, puns, parodies, alliteration, assonance, repetition, caricature, exaggeration, metaphor, and other forms of verbal and visual artistry to call attention to the gross violations of social norms and democratic values. For example, you document um, a sign that says, super callow, fragile ego, Trump, you are atrocious, which references Mm -hmm. the Mary Poppins song. And then there is a very large vagina dentata. Um, I guess you would call it a puppet, Um, a tooth vagina that Um, marched in Portland. And that's also on the cover. I mean, would you call it a puppet or it's not like a sign? You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it it is. It's sort of like, like those Lion King puppets. Um, I yes, really yes. About it yeah, I was way. thinking that. But you're, right, you're um, exactly but I, I right. It is a puppet. Um, I feel like there's a special name for it, but I, it's not coming to mind. So there's a very strong element of play and creativity with these signs. Um, what do you think these protest signs, which is a type of folk art do, in addition to calling attention to these uh, social norm violations? Um, and I'm going to add one more word that... Um, 
you didn't include. I'm going to add trolling. I think a lot of those signs were trolling. Um, oh yeah, administration. yeah, I agree. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so so yeah, let's talk a little bit more about what those signs do as folk art um, in protest. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think, I mean, okay, so I love puns. I come from a family who loves puns. Um, I do too. I used yes. to be better at making <laughs> I, Yeah, I used to be way better at making them. I tend to do inadvertent puns when then I go, oh. Um, I, uh, <laughs> years ago, because I was working on Irish revolutionary ballads, and I had a paper called The Revolting Irish, and um, and everybody in the class started giggling, and I'm like, what are you laughing at, you know? Even the professor was laughing. It was a <laughs> seminar. And I'm like, they said, read what you said again. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> anyway, me and in, in, inadvertent puns. But, um, yeah, I so I think, um, so for one thing, I mean, humor is is often seen as a, safe isn't the right word, but it but it's sort of used. It's, it's, um, it's a way to hide behind critique. I mean, that's why the white carnival, the carnival-esque stuff works because you can always, always, always say, oops, only kidding. You know, Moira Smith's um, work on that is, is I think um, really, really points to it. It's um, only joking or I blank it on the exact title of it. Uh, Moira Marsh now, but um, it's uh you can be very vicious with humor. I mean, satire is, you know, it's been around a long time. Um, and I think one of the ways you, you know, you understand a culture or an event or um, people is when you can understand their humor. So I remember at my, my dissertation defense and apologies for going back to that, but it was, one, it was one of my own little personal triumphs where, um, you know, I'm, I'm an American writing about a very, very British, um, in the English, uh, key symbol and an event that is, that is so, so important in, in British history. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of what the volunteers did, a lot of what the publications did was use humor to poke fun, to make comment, to critique, to censure, um, the behavior of, of officials and, um, and those in power. And so, one of the defense questions by the only person who was not a British, um, either either of British heritage or or who had done British, um, you know, uh, research, came from from uh, the one person on the committee who wasn't, and he said, "Well, you write a lot about British humor. How do you know you've got it?" And then James Brow, who is British, an anthropologist, and who was on the committee, before I could answer. James, who was very cherry of giving praise, said, she's got it. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, could you put that in writing? Could you like put that up on the wall somewhere? But put it um, on a yeah, one of those moments where you're just like, oh, oh, say that again, please. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I think when you can get the humor of a time, of a place, you get the culture. And I, and, and so for me, that's, that's sort of like cracking the code of, of, of getting to the heart of what's really going on with something. And so these events, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything implicit. This was all really out there, explicit stuff. And, um, and people, it, 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 you know, as, as, um, 
folklore does, it feeds on itself and, and it feeds on the creativity of other people involved, of the community, in this case, a very writ large community. People were just riffing on these, you know, the references and the puns and, you know, what we now see as memes all over the place. Um, you know, and they're, they're delightful and they, um, they just, um, they're precise and they just get right to the point and they, and they literally are crashing the symbols together, you know? So when you get the, you know, the supercalifragilistic, you know, whatever one, um, you know, you, you just like, you know, so you've got this delightful children's thing that many of us remember, uh, you know, from our childhood, you know, of, of seeing movies um, and that song, which is a fun song. And when you can say it backwards, um, it's kind of cool, especially for those of us who really practice doing it uh, as little kids or young children. Um, you know, it, it, um, it matters. And so there was so much of the, the playful children stuff. I mean, there's, there's some great, uh, Pooh and Piglet memes, which were signs. I mean, they were not, I don't know if memes were a thing then. I don't think they quite were, but, um, but, it, but it showed up on the signs. And so a lot of the stuff that we see now on social media as memes, those were those signs, you know, and they, they just pull together meanings and they pack them into a tight little, symbolic ball that that it explodes um you know and it does so seem I, like play can um, be very dangerous mm -hmm. it does seem and powerful I, you know i I thought what you said was really interesting you know about um understanding a culture because there is it's it's sort it's, it is um a communication with other people as well too. So not only is it um, you know singling your own values and your own perspective um, and your own type of play, but it also communicates to other people you know where you stand. And um, I think people can have like this hint of recognition, like yes, I get that cultural references. Like there are a couple of one, a couple of um, Star Wars ones, right? Um, a woman's place is in the resistance, and um, you know, I guess you don't have to be that big of a Star Wars geek to um, get that one. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's pretty well known, but it is certainly a pop culture, um, pop culture reference. So I thought it was really interesting because it does do the sort of communication, but also, as you also say in um, one of the chapters, multivocality, right? Um, that there's such a huge um, hodgepodge of issues that people are raising at the Women's March, not just not just um, women's rights, but um, immigrant rights and, um, uh, you know, queer rights um, and, uh, you know, uh, just just being nice, <laughs> human rights. Um, so I'm wondering if we could uh, talk about pussy hats because, you know, that's, that's a, a essential feature of the march, and that's in the title of the book. So I'm going to describe a pussy hat. It's just in case this, you know, podcast arrives in 10 years and nobody knows what a pussy hat is. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, a simple pink rectangle, either knit or crocheted or sewn, with one long side open, so that when you wear it, the corners pop up like cat ears. And um, this was a project... Um, created by two women based in LA, Jaina Zweiman and Krista Sell, who wanted uh, to create a, like a sea of pink hats at the Women's March in DC as a visual symbol of solidarity with each other and resistance to Trump's misogyn uh, misogynistic comments about grabbing pussy. 
But um, Sue Alitario, she wrote her chapter, um, The Pussyhats Common Ground at Chicago's Women's March. She wrote, uh, truly folk artifacts. The hats were not mass produced, but individually created. The process of sewing, knitting, or crocheting, and then gifting the hats represents values inherent in women's traditional crafts. And I thought that was really uh, fascinating because I didn't really think about it as, um, you know, the hats also as being folk material culture, but it's very true because this was something that people made individually and um, gave to other people. You know, I think the idea was that most people didn't buy a pussy hat. You either made one yourself or you were gifted a pussy hat, which was, which is an act of, um, community making and um, my own personal story is I didn't have a pussy hat when I attended the um, 2017 March but um, in 2018 my friend gave me um, a hat that she knitted herself because she said it was her goal to knit a pussy hat for all of her female friends and I thought that was definitely aligned with um, these shared values that Sue Alitario was talking about of community making, sharing, solidarity. And I was wondering what else, uh, what you thought about uh, pussy hats as, um, you know, what kind of values they represented. And, um, and also, did I, did I uh, yeah, if you wanted to add anything to the description of the pussy hat and how, how you came by your pussy hat, how, how did you get your pussy hat? Um, no, I think your description was was you know right on with it, and and I really appreciated um, the stuff that Sue wrote ab- about all that. I think it's really important to, um, you know, to pay attention to the material culture of of the uh, the women's march and which drifted into the subsequent marches, um, because it is. Um, yeah, and, and I know there there became a lot of of issues about it that you know not not all identified people identified as women have their own pussies so to speak. Um, uh, not all are pink. Um, you know, I mean, the pink I think came out of really the the breast cancer ribbons of of um, you know of October. You know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, and so I think number one, I, I don't know that it was necessarily a reference to the color of you know white women's genitalia. I, I honestly believe it actually came out of out of that and the sort of over identification of pink with women. Um, the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century, pink used to be associated with boys and light blue with girls. Um, you know, which I always find fascinating and like to point out to people. But you know, just my own little pedantic thing. But um, so yeah, that kind of became an issue after a while. But I mean, Erica Brady, who's also a folklorist and a dear, dear friend, made um, made my pussy hat and my daughter's pussy hats, and um, and and FedEx them to us so that we they got here in time. Um, you know, so that so again, mine, yeah, yeah. So you know, they they have great great meaning because a dear friend made them, and and Erica, who's like the most phenomenal editor in on the planet um has uh yeah she's just always been a super duper supportive friend and you know my daughter kind of grew up around a lot of afs people so um you know that poor kid has has you know not a kid now she's 21 but you know she's got <laughs> facebook friends she doesn't know because they're my friends <laughs> but anyway wait a minute she's 21 um, and she's on facebook <laughs> Uh, because her mom and her sisters and her aunt, no, aunts and uncles see. are on Facebook. Yeah, I know. Okay. She's mostly on Instagram <laughs> and Snapchat and 
whatever else she's on um, that, that I'm sure she hasn't told yeah. me about. <laughs> just, but, I, yeah, I was just kidding about yeah. that. But it's great that she's still on Facebook oh, no, because that means right. I'm not it totally is, a dinosaur. Yeah, no, it, it is a, a generational thing. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we found out about, you know, all kinds of family stuff on Facebook. But um, anyway. We won't go there, but um, but yeah, no, I think the um, the gifting was so important. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, that had means something. Now, I will say that, um, and there's a great example of an oversaturated metaphor. You can't wear that hat without it carrying a whole lot of symbolic weight these days. In fact, by the end of the first year of the um, after after the uh, the election, um, a lot of people had stopped wearing the hats because it became sort of I won't say so far as politically incorrect, but it was veering in that direction, you know, because of the GLBTQ plus um, uh, ongoing liberation movement, um, BIPOC, whatever. So it it started to become a thing itself, which which I I you know at a certain point. Um, maybe we need to stop some of the infighting and just kind of go for the, the main point. But I have to say, this was not a fight I was having. It was, it was a hat, you know, and a dear friend made mine and my daughter's and, and I so love that. Um, but yeah, but to, but I will say you, so I remember very self-consciously wearing it one day just because I needed a hat to wear and I couldn't find any of my others. And you know, it rains a lot in Oregon. So I needed a hat and, um, and a couple of what I assume were undergraduate women. Um, it can be hard to tell sometimes, you know, sort of looked at me and they said, Oh, we like your beanie. And which is a very much of a West Coast word for, no, no, that's not a beanie. It's a hat. It's like, all right, whatever. But, um, but I was a little too, I'm not one who, I, I don't dress up in costumes. I don't do costume parties. You know, I did when I was a kid, but I'm way too self-conscious about that sort of thing now. But um, so I stopped wearing it um, because it just felt too, too <laughs> uh, in your face um, to have. I guess it. I would only wear it at like a uh, march or something. Right, right. And I mean, that's I what know, I had I would, done. I, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did wear it, you know, for the, you know, as sort of, um, the you know, the Me Too marches, certainly, um, the Black Lives Matter marches. And then it, you know, it, it just became increasingly not, not relevant to some of those marches. So I stopped. But, you know, there were so many marches that year. Um, kind of a title for another another thing but yeah so i think um i forget where we drifted from this but you know there were other um andrew glass's article really points to a lot of the other material culture um that was going on the pins the buttons um you know other little bits and pieces the memorabilia um yeah that became important right and i thought that um you know i thought that uh her article, Andrea Glass's article about um, uh, the charms that her art studio, or not her art studio, but the queer owned art studio in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that made jewelry and charms. Um, she wrote that they were material items of resistance that were not only inspired by larger trends, but were also in conversation with them. So all these material things um, in these marches, the hats, the signs, these charms, 
they were um, they were they were full conversations um, uh, with uh, the general public. Not, I mean, people. It's, it's not just uh, people like you. You can actually physically talk to, but there were conversations happening across the nation through social media. They were um, signaling um, uh, where your values were. Um, she also uh, said that people were encouraged to um, come up with phrases that meant the most to them, like "love trumps hate." Nasty woman, Black Lives Matter, Pussy Grabs Back, um, to put on these charms that the studio would make. And then they would, um, you know, give them out for free or purchase them or, or um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure which one. Um, but they served as a symbol of like being a safe person to share similar ideas and values. And I'm just really struck by how this march was just so full of these kinds of things that did so much, um, so much uh, work in terms of um, communicating ideas and sharing and building communitas. Um, and I think that, uh, and what, and I think that this is something that is, uh, and I think you also wrote something that, you know, these, um, you know, these sharing of values, um, uh, sharing of values uh, of the values of women's arts, you know, become more prevalent because I'm thinking about coming full circle and what happened this year, you know, uh, mask making, right? Also a gifting thing. I was also gifted my mask. Um, uh, a friend sewed, uh, sewed one for me and she mailed it to me and people are mailing, um, creating masks and mailing them to each other and to uh, healthcare workers. So I think that it's a really, uh, I don't know, it's it's a little bit full circle too. We start off with pussy hats, and we're ending with, we're ending an administration with homemade masks. That's what he needs to do. Well, I did see yeah, hat face masks, but I think they were just sort of you know different people were doing you know those little goofy noses that you can do um, with you know Instagram has that. Um, or one of those, I forget, boomerang or something. My daughter knows all this stuff um, where you can, you know, put animal noses on yourself and funny ears and whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I agree with you. I'm sitting here because um, I have a sewing machine right adjacent to my computer, um, my office setup. And um, yeah, I've got uh, masks that one friend gave me that I was like looking at going, I want to make another one like this one. How'd she do it? Um, the ones that I made, um, you know, I've, yeah, passed on to others. I mean, people now, you know, are doing the, oh, I really like your mask. Um, you know, there were a few like that, that, that I've gotten, um, compliments on, which is like, oh, great. Or people saying, oh, your mask matches your outfit. Yes, I try. But, you know, sometimes you just grab the mask and uh, learning which masks work better and with it like oh wow no more dangly earrings because yeah they flip off when you're wearing a mask and you take the mask off but um yeah i mean it's it is something that is about sharing and uh and yeah showing values um which unfortunately with the masks shouldn't be but has become so um but yeah there is i remember when people were wearing the safety pins um as sort of part of a, the Me Too thing. And and then it became a little bit too self-conscious and there's big debate about, well, what are we really going to do if somebody comes up to you and, you know, wants to, you know, need your help and, you know, are you prepared to help them? And thought, oh, okay. Um, 
you know, so the symbols, the symbols sometimes become a little bit overwrought, but, but yeah, I do think like with the signs, um, with the other ob- material culture objects. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. They, they do. Well, I, Andrea said it. Um, they, they do create a conversation with each other. Um, you know, there's that, you know, to be technical, the semiotic communication. Um, but, but yeah, to get back to something you actually said earlier about it, not being a typical academic press book. Well, we actually started in the conversation with the press was no, we want it to be a more popular book. We don't want it to be super academic. You know, the papers we gave at AFS, we had, I think, at least two panels plus a few more, you know, outliers at AFS in 2017, the American Folklore Society Conference. Um, And, uh, you know, through the reader's comments, through the, you know, Mississippi is an academic press. And even though they tip more popular, um, it's sort of hard to escape the, um, the paradigm. Of, of what a book is supposed to be. So we did push back as much as possible on that. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's a pretty good compromise. I've been, you know, friends who are not folklorists, who are not academics have purchased it. I thank them for that. I, we so appreciate it. I know Mississippi Press, they told me that the, the, everybody who worked on the book was just so happy about working on the book. And, you know, oh my gosh, the designer graphic designer, unbelievably good. And, and I have to, again, um, kudos to the press because this is a risky, uh, cover and I proposed it. I mean, I was like, you know, you dream of finding a vagina dentata if you're a folklorist, um, which shows up in ballads and folk tales. But but never, never do you think you're going to see one at a at a march, and then it's like, whoa, ladies, thank you. Um, so I snapped the picture. So I knew I wanted it in my article, but I was like, could we have it on the cover? Do you think? And never, never did I think they were going to go with it. Um, so yeah, huge kudos to them for for taking the risk, and um, and just going with it, which which I so appreciate. Right. Um, it's a great cover. So and yeah. um, I think that uh, uh, yeah, it's it's the um, it's the idea of I know I mean I know the vagina dentata appears a lot in uh, different cultures, but I guess in this context, it's a response to you know, Trump and yeah. um, it's saying pussy grabs back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, you know, you write that the personal is political and in your chapter, you also uh, talk about your journey of, um, you know, why you, uh, why you decide to march in this particular march. And um, Patricia saw when she wrote about the generational you know, the generations that were present at the marches. And, you know, and she said that, um, you know, there were different roles that different generations played the march. So there was the little children, um, which represent innocence, the maidens, which were, uh, which represent determination and the willingness to mock Trump. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, uh, parents, which exemplified the power of those to, um, well, this is what she wrote, exemplified power of those called to protect uh those they love and older people criticize um, his immaturity and remind young people that social change requires patience and persistence. And so I'm wondering, uh, what did you think about uh, 
you know, kind of like those generational groups. Did you see the march in terms of generation? Did you sense that generation, those generational groups, or did you think of it as just one big hodgepodge of people? Um, you know, of course, uh, there was communitas there. But um, yeah, I guess I didn't really think of it in terms of, uh, I guess I didn't think of it too much in terms of generation at the time, but thinking about it more, you know, reading her article makes me think about it a little bit more. So I'm wanting to hear your impressions and your thoughts about the generations of march, uh, marchers. Um, you know, I, I didn't really think about it that way either. I mean, you know, I, we were in very different places, you know, all of us, um, we were certainly, I mean, you know, we couldn't communicate during the march because you couldn't even use a cell phone. Everything was so clogged up. Um, but I, you know, I, what I noticed, um, okay. So Portland, which so Oregon has a very fraught, um, racist history. It is, you know, the, the, it was, it was formed as a, as a white utopia. Um, it is the farther North, northest Southern state. Um, which I didn't know when I moved here um, or when I came here for conferences, you know, because it has, you know, the the image of being hip and cool and, you know, liberal and all that. And, and there's a pretty nasty, you know, underpinning um, underneath a lot of Oregon history. I think it's changing a lot, you know, demographically it's changing, um, politically it's certainly changing. Um, but you know, it's, it, there's a lot going on and, and Portland in particular has a lot of issues, but, um, you know, as, as to a lot of, you know, lar- large urban areas that are, that are struggling with, um, you know, with homeless populations, unhoused, um, you know, so many, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter stuff, um, undocumented people, whatever it's, you know, it's a lot to, to, to deal with. So I guess what struck me was there were a lot of young people out. I mean, you know, people in their twenties and thirties, men and women. Um, and there, it was a very, I would say ethnically diverse group that was out, which I was, it just felt great. And what was also nice was seeing the police were super supportive. I mean, everybody was smiling, um, you know, so I wasn't, um, I, yeah, sorry, long answer to, I really didn't, um, look at it that way. Um, you know, that, that was Patricia's particular take on it, which, which I think was right and accurate. Um, what I noticed was sort of the people who knew how to march and people who didn't know how to march, you know, which I refer to of, you know, some people who are like, oh, they don't know the chance. They don't know the words there's no, that part wasn't spontaneous. You know, people, people have to be taught, you know, how how to do this stuff. And, um, you know, so I think that that is what stood out for me, um, as well as the rather delightful, you know, people, you know, the great signs and the puns and whatever, but also people um, doing some of the visual stuff that that is part of protesting like the guy with you know um banging banging the pot lid i'm like whoa thank you for doing rough music for me you know perfect folklore thing to be doing nice job guy who are you you know but you know i don't know who these people are i mean this is anonymous documentation i mean this is not i don't know these people um i just knew the little group i was with 
Um, you know, so, so no, I, I guess it was in retrospect. Yeah. I, I totally agree with Patricia and I think she was right, but I, and I was aware of, of being there for my daughter and, and really, really, um, being very conscious of that because again, I'm not somebody who generally marches. <laughs> well, I used to not be somebody who generally marches. Um, and my husband and I, and, and he, he did march, um, you know, in, in the, in the late sixties and early seventies, um, you know, Rick and Nikki did too. Um, I didn't, um, for reasons we've discussed, but, um, but I really felt I needed to do this for Eva um, for my daughter, it was just super, super important. And, and again, because there was the, the odd conflation of her having to do this needless, you know, citizenship ceremony, um, when she already was a citizen, um, conflated with this protest and, and with the total piggery displayed by Trump and his administration towards women in general, and in particular. So it all just kind of, for me, clumped together that way. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. I think. I mean, I'm not like you. I'm not really a protest person, and I. And I think a lot of people are surprised. Um. Kind of consider. Um. Considering my uh, strong political opinions, and um. And there was a time when I thought, you know, protests don't do that much. Um. But I. I mean, yeah, and I've come to kind of. Um. I've come to. Uh. You know disagree with that former idea that I had. I thought of protests as just kind of like people who want to bear, I mean, I wasn't against protests or marches. I thought it was just like people wanting to, um, you know, you know, bear, uh, bear witness or express their testimony about what they thought. But as Jack Santino said, you know, size matters. And when people are angry enough, you know, when a mass of people are angry enough, they're going to go in the streets. And um, people are going to take notice if there are masses of people out on the street, and I and that's something that's something to reckon with. And um, I I wonder, you know, do you think what what changes do you think that um, this woman women's marches, um, you know, which was you know global, which uh, what things did it uh, change, or what structural changes did it enact? I think you did say something about how it enacted some structural changes, and I want I I'm interested in hearing you say more about that. Well, I think, you know, certainly, you know, the, the elections in, you know, the midterm elections, so many more women, so many more people of color um, were elected. Um, so many people have gotten involved. Um, I mean, I'd say personally, I've never given, I, I didn't used to donate to political campaigns. Um, Oregon actually encourages it. It's that you get a tax credit for it, which is kind of cool. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have given more money, especially in the last four years. I mean, I was doing it that summer, you know, when, when the, um, the, you know, the, the political conventions were going on, um, in 2016. So, I, so I think a lot more people are giving, a lot more people are aware. Um, I think, I mean, my political coming of age had to do with writing letters on behalf of the National Endowment for the Arts when a lot of the um, the cuts were being made in the 90s um, for beca- because of art that, that certain members of Congress didn't think should be funded. And, you know, there were a lot of 
I think, misunderstandings and misperformances about certain things. But um, but so for me, it was like, oh, well, this really does make a difference. Your voice can be heard and, you know, join with others and it matters, which was a wonderful education. Now, I've always voted, you know, my parents are the children of immigrants. Um, you know, that vote is important. I don't, I never don't vote. Um you know, we've made sure my daughter feels that way as well um, and, and does vote. And here in Oregon, you know, we get it, we vote by mail here. So everything comes, you know, you get your packet, um, you get your postcards from everybody in sight, but you also get a pamphlet that lays out all the issues and um, people write in and explain this or that or whatever. So, I mean, at, at bottom, like, look at this election, look how many more people voted, look at the midterm elections. Um, I think in terms of other structural change, uh, things have just, I think on both sides have come out of, um, uh, people are saying more in public for good or ill, um, but things are being discussed that need to be discussed, you know, whether it's BIPOC issues or whether it's, um, you know, the whole Me Too movement, which goes on still. Um, Black Lives Matter, uh, just, you know, the, the environment, the need for, gosh, people pay attention to science or, you know, this current situation where we're all, you know, hunkered down at home, um, wearing our masks, if we think we should, um, when we go out, um, because it matters. And so, you know, communication has, has, um, definitely increased, but I also think, um, Oh, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say how much is related to the Women's March and how much is just the way the media and um, the Internet has has exploded in the last four years. Um, I, I guess, you know, again, I look at it as as a parent looking at at a daughter who's come of age and stepdaughters who have become so, so political, which is wonderful to see. Um, and and are brave, outspoken women, um, which is important. Um, so I, I think that that has been there. That that voice, <coughs> the notion that in a democracy your voice counts, um, but unless you speak up, nobody's going to know what you think or say or whatever. So you got to do it even if you don't want to do it because you're kind of an introvert um, or whatever, or somebody might not like it if you do that. Um, so again, I've, I've watched women in my own family um, and, and the men be so, so supportive um, as they should be, but, um, but also getting it um, and recognizing how important it is. And, you know, but again, I, you know, I live in a certain kind of world. Um, on the other hand, I do, as part of being a folklorist, I talk to people who are politically um, not necessarily in agreement with me. I'm, I have those conversations. Um, you know, it's sort of part of part of the world and part of the job. I try to avoid some of them, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's people, especially after this last four years, realizing that. <coughs> This is how government works. These are the systems. You know, do we, should we toss out the electoral college? People are starting, you know, they're reading about it. I mean, you know, Hamilton became a sensation 
not just because it was great music and great entertainment. There was a big message in that musical. Um, you know, so I think too that there there is um people are, are becoming more educated about it. I mean, I know way more about the courts than I ever knew. Um, especially the, you know, how the district courts work versus the Supreme Court and all the rest. It's like, whoa, you know, I'm a folklorist. I that's generally not where I invest my time. <laughs> so you know, and just how things work. And I, I would agree with you that, I mean, there's a marching fatigue. I certainly got there myself <coughs> and got to the point where it's like, okay, there's other things I can do that might matter more, that might be a better use of my time. <coughs> and certainly in this last year, you know, um, once the pandemic happened, <coughs> being out marching is, um, it's dangerous you know, to yourself and to others. And um, so you have to you have to decide where to put your time um, and your voice and your money and whatever you've got. So I don't know if that really answered your question. I'm wondering, um, well, no, it, well, first, yes, it, it did answer my question, so thank you. Um, but, you know, you're talking, uh, but your comments just made me think about something else, you know, this past March. I don't recall that, that many marches took place because of the pandemic. Um, we don't know the march will take place next year because of the pandemic. But also, people may not be as angry with um, Biden's, you know, with Biden um, as much. So this um, march fatigue. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm just. I'm wondering if it's uh, if it's just a hallmark of these past four years. Um, these huge protests, because I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, wow, I don't know if I'm going to have the mental space to be protesting all the time and teaching. Um, <laughs> so uh, so I think that there is, um, yeah, I think that, uh, I think because of the women's marches, I think it's just become more visible uh, that marches can and do happen and they should happen because it raises attention to really big issues, and we um, and we've seen uh, these kind of like mass um, mobilizations just just this past summer, and most recently with the election, um, and you know the uh, the Black Lives Matters um, uh, protests. Uh, it made me think about what was the what was the primary. Uh, it's a, a primary material cultural element in these protests, and it was called the murals. Um, and uh, um, and most recently, we're also ending, we're also ending these. We're coming full circle. We're ending these four years. Um, also, rough music making, but not in protest, in celebration. Because right after the election, I did hear reports of people coming out with pots and pans and banging them out because they were just so happy. It was so spontaneous. There was spontaneous dancing on the streets. I mean, did you did you hear that as well too? Uh, yeah, I mean, here, you know, again, and, you know, we're kind of off in these, you know, hills of south of Eugene. Eugene's not that big a town. Um, but yeah, there were, there was some, some noise making going on, which is typical of, you know, and traditional of elections. Um, of course, this one went on, you know, it was election week, not election night, um, and now weeks. But, um, 
there was that. I mean, I know that there there was the the sort of the reverse of rough music going on um, in New York City for the the healthcare workers, where people were were you know banging, opening their windows and banging their pots and pans every night at what six or seven or whatever it was. There was a little bit of a movement towards that here, but um, you know, at different times. I mean, you know, we were dealing. At late summer and well into the fall, you know, we're dealing with fires in Oregon. So um, that kind of took over everything for a lot of us. Um, it was like, okay, rest of the world, deal with it because we're trying to survive here. We're trying to breathe, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, different things, different times. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's just been a heck of a year. It's, um, you know, so it, it's... And, and then, you know, Portland and, and Eugene, to a degree, were um, definitely, you know, the scene of protest. Portland, because, you know, they extended the, the uh, whatever they were, the, um, uh, sorry, I forget the name of it, the um, homeland people were there. I mean, it was sort of like, what are you doing? And they made it worse. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quiet but it certainly the whole city was not exploding and you know i mean different times have different protests you know you saw it in the late 60s with the vietnam war and the civil rights protests um you know we seem to go through phases of this um you know through history of you know when when large groups of people feel the need to get out there and make their voices known um it's usually when they when they've been pushed to the wall when nothing else is working, and you just have to do something. And I, I think that's a lot of what the women's march and the other marches of that year were about. It's just like we have to say this. We have to show up with our bodies. We have to be present um, to make the point. And you know, and and I love that you know the people who showed up you know, for Trump's inauguration were so much fewer, so much fewer than for the women's marches. Um, you know, but, but to have, you know, the whole world, um, you know, basically be thrilled to pieces that, uh, that Trump is out of office or at least most of the world, you know, kind of says something about what's been going on. Um, you know, I, I, yeah. Yeah, as as somebody with with a a lot of education invested in studying history, I um, you know I try to look at the stuff in perspective, which which is a way of distancing, and which is not always the right thing to be doing. But um, but yeah, there are these moments where things just explode and take off, and that's how change happens. Um, you know, I wish it didn't have to happen that way, um, but if you look at the way you know, even biological growth, it doesn't happen slowly. It, it does happen in fits and starts. Um, you know, a kid will shoot up overnight, you know, and everybody will comment on it. It's like, well, yeah, they really did do that. Um, plants grow the same way. I mean, some of it's slow, but a lot of it isn't. So I, I, sometimes you have to swing to the other side and before you can move things forward, it's, it's a shame. And I wish it didn't have to be that way. Um, but I don't well, know. It seems to be the way people are. Well, we'll see what happens in the next four years. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think that um, I've uh, well, 
I think that I've taken I've already taken up much of your time. So I um you know I appreciate that you have been so kind to talk to me about um you know the book um Pussy Hats Public Protests. Oh, I'm sorry, Pussy Hats Politics and Public Protests, which I noted was also um alliterative, like a key feature of those protest signs. Um, so, <laughs> try. We went through several versions before we got to this. <laughs> oh, I thought this this title would have been so obvious. I'm like, yes, you know, perfect title. <laughs> um, but thank you so much um for coming on and talk um talking about this. Uh it was really interesting, a lot of fun. But um before I let you go, I'd like to ask you one last question, which is what is your next project? Oh gosh. Um Great question. Um, so there's, yes, in my little, what a friend refers to as my pile of shame stuff that I need to get to. Um, well, I'm, te- I, you know, I only teach one regular class a year, and that's um, Folklore and Foodways this year, which is going to be um, synchronous and virtual, as we say these days. So, so that's, that's upcoming. Um, but I think um, I've been working for quite a while with um, with students and others to document the Fisher Poets Gathering, um, small, you know, commercial, commercial fishermen crews um, who mostly fish in the waters um, of Alaska. And, um, you know, they came together uh, years ago. I want to say it's now 22, 23 years. Um, and it's commercial fishermen. I mean, it's a seasonal occupation uh, for, for many. And they, they write occupational poetry and prose. Um, about what they do. And um, Jens Lund, who's another folklorist out here in the Northwest, uh, as soon as he heard I got the job, he said, oh, you got to come to this. And for me, it's kind of a full circle because it's back to documenting watermen and women and what they do. And But but also this, it, I don't have to look, look too far for the aesthetic component. They're doing it for me. So we've, uh, I and uh, students in now for seven years um, have been, interviewing Fisher poets about what the work they do and the poetry and prose that they write and how they come to it and why they do it. Um, which I think is the central question that I always ask, you know, culture keepers. It's um, most people are not, you know, quilting, logging, well, logging is a, is an occupation, but um, you know, a lot of what people do, the aesthetic component of, of an occupation is, is done out of passion. It's not because you um, necessarily have to do it, but when you're mostly not doing it for the money, um, although that's always a nice little sideline if it happens, um, but people do it because they care about it because it's part of their lives and who they are and who their community is. And, um, you know, so I've got piles and piles of recordings and I've been talking to them for the last few years about a book and I don't know what it is or how I'm going to do it. And it might be an edited um, collection of their words and their poetry. I'm not really sure, but I, I think that needs to be it. Um, and then I've been sort of toying over the years with something about public folklore because I've spent a lifetime as a public folklorist Um uh, and and I think it's time for another publication on that by some different voices than have previously published on it. But yeah, I don't know. Looking forward well, to I'm, a vaccine I'm, and getting out and getting out of the house. That would be a great project. <laughs> I, 
I'm looking forward to um, seeing what you come up with and hearing about it at the next um, annual folklore meeting or you know, in your next co- publication. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. So again, thank you so much for um, coming on. And um, yeah, uh, Nick, uh, when you get that publication in, uh, we'll have you on again. Okay. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for asking. It's been delightful talking to you and I hope I didn't ramble too much. Um, And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk to you another time about your work and what you do. Um, And great, great interviewing. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.